Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13 and verse 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, maybe someone would be kind enough sitting nearby either to lend you theirs or to allow you uh, to follow along in theirs. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. Matthew writes, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn but they gather the wheat into my barn. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Now you'll recall in Matthew chapter 13, it's a chapter full of parables, eight parables in all, and they cover that period of time from the rejection of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ right up to uh, the end and, uh, of this age and to the uh, coming of the Lord. And then Jesus begins this parable a little bit differently than the previous one. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man. In other words, he says quite literally, the kingdom of heaven has become like something. Now, they've rejected the kingdom. The Jews have rejected the kingdom. The Pharisees have rejected the kingdom. And the question is, what's to become of the kingdom? And Jesus says, well, this is what's become of it. The kingdom of heaven has become like. It is something developing. And then he proceeds to tell this story. So the story is simple enough. A man goes out into a field, he sows seed and wheat seed, and under the cover of darkness an enemy comes and he sows another plant, tears among the wheat, a damaging plant, and of course at first nobody notices. Nobody knows that this has been done, and the plants grow and uh, they are indistinguishable one from the other, but as time uh, passes the servants begin to notice as, they, uh, as the plants form, as they come to uh, their fullest fruit they begin to notice that something has gone awry, that the, the, awry, that the, the uh, harvest has uh, been corrupted, that it has been damaged in some way. And so they offer to go through the field picking out uh, the, uh, the offensive plants, but the owner of the field advises against it. And he's concerned that in doing that they will inadvertently uproot good plants and thereby do damage to the harvest. Now, as with the previous parable, Jesus, when he told this story, uh, told it as we just read it to his listeners. And that was all they got. They got no explanation of what it was about. And they must have thought to themselves, what is this about? First, a, a parable about a sower sowing seed and some falling on this ground and some falling on that. And now this second parable, which is also a seed sowing parable. And they, uh, and they must have wondered, what's this about? You know, what does this story mean? What's he trying to say to us? 
But in a quiet moment, his disciples asked him the question. They asked if he would explain this parable. And pick up in verse 36 with me, if you will. It says, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he says it as he said before, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. So it's very, it's very simple. He's laid out the entire parable before us. There's no great mystery in this parable. We don't have to work hard to interpret it. He tells us clearly the sower is the son of man. He tells us the field is the world. He tells us the good seed is the children of the kingdom, that the enemy is the devil, that the corrupting seed is the children of the wicked one, and that the harvest is at the end of the world or the consummation of the age when his angels will go out and reap the harvest, taking care of both the bad seed alongside the good seed. But what does all of this mean to us, to you and I sitting here many years removed from this story in terms of the telling of it and uh, many miles removed from it in terms of the geography of it? Well, the first thing I want to say to you tonight is this, that this parable teaches us that the Lord has his people and the devil has his people. The Lord has his people and the devil has his. You see, after the Lord Jesus was crucified, after he was risen and ascended into heaven, the work of the Great Commission uh, began, the work of worldwide evangelization. And everywhere Christ was preached. Uh, and that's what the whole of the book of Acts is about. If you want to take the time and read something of the development and history of the church, it's right there in the 28 chapters of the book uh, of Acts. And so almost everywhere the gospel went, uh, people were saved. And the Lord was spreading the seed. He was planting the seed, as it were, through the apostles and others in the world. And, you know, in, in that respect, there, this was a, a great surprise of the early church. You see, to begin with, the church was exclusively Jewish. It was contained within the borders of Jerusalem, of Israel. It met in Jerusalem. It consisted entirely of Jewish believers. But then a wonderful thing happened. A man called Philip, who was a deacon and an evangelist, went into the region of Samaria. And the Samaritans were neither Jew nor Gentile. They're a hybrid race, a mixture of, of both. And, and so the, the Samaritans responded to Philip's preaching. And, and such was the surprise of the church that they sent Peter and John to investigate what was going on among the Samaritans. But then an even more amazing thing happened. In Caesarea, a little town that hugged the Mediterranean Sea, a man by the name of Cornelius, a Gentile, was praying one morning. 
and he saw a vision. And in that vision, he was told to send for the apostle Peter, who had a very important message for him. Peter being 45 miles down the, down the coast in a southerly direction in Joppa. And simultaneously, the Lord gave Peter a vision and showed him that this man was going to send some emissaries to speak to him, some uh, messengers to speak with him and invite him to come to his home. Now, ordinarily, a Jewish man like Peter would never have dreamed of accepting that invitation. He would have rejected it instantly. It, wasn't, it was forbidden for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home. But the Lord, by means of a vision, showed Peter that he needed to do that, that he had to go and he had to be a witness to Cornelius and to his household. And so he did. And to his surprise, he discovered that the Gentiles now could be saved, that the Gentiles could come into the church. So first it was the Jews, and then it was the Samaritans, and now it was the Gentiles. And as you continue through the book of Acts, the next thing you discover is there's a whole church of Gentiles that have emerged in Antioch, Syria, again of concern to the Jerusalem church. They send Barnabas to go and investigate that situation. And when Barnabas gets there, we read that when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all, all these Gentiles, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. From that church, Barnabas and Saul, later to be known as Paul, was commissioned and sent out as the first missionaries and took their first uh, missionary journey up into Asia Minor and the gospel took root in Asia Minor and what we now know as the land of Turkey and then later on uh, they crossed over into Europe uh, into Macedonia and began to plant churches in Europe you see here's the thing I want you to see this is the picture that Jesus painting he says the kingdom of heaven is becoming like this and he starts to show himself throwing out the seed not just in Jerusalem not just in Judea not just in the in the region of Galilee and beyond. He's now reaching out into the, into the area of the Samaritans. He's now reaching out into Asia. He's now reaching out into Europe. And now we find the gospel is spreading across the world. And, and what I want you to get tonight is this. God has his people everywhere. There's nowhere you can go you know that God doesn't have some people. Nowhere. You know, one of the things we do as part of our uh, social media uh, investment is to record these sermons on sermon audio. In fact, this very sermon is going out on sermon audio even now as I speak. And uh, the amazing thing about that is that at the end of each month, the, the folks who run that particular ministry uh, will send us a report of where people have been listening from. It's quite astonishing when you look down that report and you see the countries where people are listening in around the world to this very church service. You know, I haven't looked specifically at the report here, but I used to look at the reports we had in England, and you would see places like Saudi Arabia, uh, places like Iran. Uh, you would see uh, places like China, places where the, where, the, where the gospel was forbidden, where it was closed to missionaries. Uh, this message is coming in. And uh, it used to amaze me that people would be sitting in those countries listening to, to me preach and, 
and to other people preaching. And, and, and that's what God is doing in this hour. And right throughout this age, right till the end, that's what's going to go on. The gospel will be published among the nations. It's an amazing thing what God is doing. He is sowing his wheat. And as a consequence of that, there are children of the kingdom right throughout the world today. His children are everywhere. But now what happens? What happens now is an enemy comes and he sows the terrors, his people. You see, the devil has his children and they too are everywhere and abundant. And so we discover in, this, uh, in the course of this passage, the sowing of the terrors was a devilish work. The Lord Jesus said so. The enemy which sowed them is the devil in verse 39. So alongside the children of the kingdom sit the children of the wicked one. The sowing of the terrors was a devious work. It wasn't done openly. It wasn't done publicly. It was done under the cover of darkness when the church was asleep. And by the way, the church is still asleep largely. Uh, you know, here's the thing. The church has failed wholesale in its effort uh, to fulfill the Great Commission and evangelize the world. Of course, we, we began well, but within a very short period of time, largely the evangelization of the world drew to a halt. And we'll see some of the reasons for that as we proceed through this chapter. But here we are even 2,000 years on from this time and what? There are still huge tracts of the world that are under-evangelized and unevangelized. And that's a tremendous indictment upon the people of God. So Satan took this opportunity to do his work. So that whilst the church was sleeping, he was planting, he was planting, he was planting. And he put terrors among the wheat. He sowed his own children among the children of the kingdom. And so we see the sowing of the tares was not just a devilish work, not just a devious work, but it was a deceptive work. Because while it's growing, the tares can, be, can hardly be distinguished from the, the pure wheat. And it's only as the tares mature and come to full growth that you can make a, a difference between these two plants. And so that's the picture. You know, the one is wholesome and healthy, the other is poisonous and dark and, and black. And so the, what we're saying here is the Lord has his people and the devil has his people. But then I want you to see it's hard to tell sometimes the Lord's people from the devil's people. It's hard to tell the Lord's people from the devil's people. You say, well, Pastor Moore, what do you mean? It's easy to see that. I mean, the Lord's people are all good people. They're good living people. They go to church and they sing praises and they pray and they read their Bibles. And, well, the, 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 the others, they're wicked and they're worldly. They, they smoke, they drink, they curse, they take drugs, they have poor morals, they live those terrible lives that, that we read of and see, perhaps, on our TV screens. Now, admittedly, from that perspective, you might think that it would be easy to separate one from the other, uh, to see who's who. Uh, but it's really not that simple. Now, we have to get away from this caricature of the unsaved man. A lost man might well be all those things that I just said. He may well be a heavy drinker. He may well be a smoker. He may well take drugs. He may well uh, have uh, terrible morals. He may well live an awful life. But a lost man could just as easily be a churchgoer. 
He could just as easily be a Bible reader. He might pray even as you pray. He might do good things. He might have very high standards for himself and for his family. He might be a decent person. He might even be to some degree a moral person, what we would call a good person. But he's still a lost man. You see, wherever Christ sows a Christian, Satan sows a counterfeit, one beside the other. And it's sometimes hard to tell them apart. You see, here's the thing. The most insidious and devilish and subtle attacks of the devil is to produce people who are almost everything that a Christian is except born again. Paul speaks about those who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. That's what he's talking about. People who look the part Sound the part, act the part, dress the part, walk the part, but are not saved, not born again. A number of years ago, I was taking a meeting in the south of England. And at the end of that meeting, they had a Q&A, a question and answer time. And uh, you had to stand there for a 15 or 20 minutes and feed these questions from the floor. And uh, I spoke on the judgment seat of Christ as opposed to the great white throne of judgment and how that the saved would be judged at the judgment seat and the lost would be judged at the great, great white throne. And uh, when I went out to the floor for questions, this dear put her hand up. And she says to me, do you know who I'm concerned about? I says, who? She says, I'm concerned about the Christians in my church who are not born again. I looked at her and said, but they're not Christians. She said, no, I know. She says, but I'm concerned about the, the Christians in our church who are not born again. And I said to her, but you've got to understand this. If you're not born again, you're not a Christian. And she said it a third time. Well, I, I'm really concerned. But she says, I understand that. She says, but I, I'm concerned about the Christians in our church who are not born again. And what she didn't seem to understand is that there's wheat and there's tares. There's those who appear as Christians and there are those who are Christians. There's those who seem to be Christians and there are those who really are Christians. You see, there's a difference between the two. But it's hard to tell the difference sometimes. In other words, there are people who look like Christians, who act outwardly as Christians, but they lack the reality of Christ within. They look right, they act right, they talk right, they walk right, but they're not right. Well, there's that you tonight. Are you bluffing it? Are you trying to fool the people? Let me tell you something. People are easily fooled. You're trying to fool the pastor. Listen, I am the pastor. I'm easily fooled. I've been fooled umpteen times in my life. More times than I care to remember. Oh, you're here tonight and, and by all tokens, everybody here would look at you and say, well, that person must be a Christian. I see that person at church on a Sunday night or I see that person at church on a Sunday morning. They must be one of us. They must be a Christian also. But you know in your heart of hearts that that's not the case. You've never truly trusted Christ. 
Here's the thing. The wheat and the tares are virtually identical until late in their development. You see, there are people we may point to and readily point to and say, well, there's no way that person could possibly be a Christian. Behaving like they do. Believing what they believe. There's no way that person could possibly be a Christian. But there are other people of whom it's hard to tell. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, Magistrates and churches may remove the openly wicked from their society. The outwardly good who are inwardly worthless, they must leave. For the judging of hearts is beyond their sphere. See what he's saying there? He's saying that the government, that, that the magistrates, that the judges may deal with those who are openly wicked, with the murderers and the rapists and the robbers and all the rest of it. It's easy to identify those people as wrongdoers. It's easy to point out the finger and say, well, those people definitely are sinning. But Spurgeon says it's much harder than for magistrates, indeed impossible for them, to deal with the outwardly good who are inwardly worthless. In other words, he says those who are living according to societal laws and seem to be keeping the law, but in their heart of hearts they're as rebellious as the one that's being taken from society. I always like the, little, the story of the little boy who was told by his father in church he needed to sit down. He kept standing up during the service. The father said, sit down. He said, and he, and he stood up. The father said, sit down. Finally, the father had enough of it. He said, son, if you don't sit down, I'm going to smack your rear end when you get home. The wee boy sat down. He said to his daddy, he says, daddy, I want you to know. He says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm standing up. And that's where a lot of us are tonight. We're conforming on the outside. But on the inside, we're rebellious against God. We're conforming to, to please others, to please mom, to please dad, to please husband, to please wife, to please society, to please the preacher, to please the church. But you're not going to answer to any of those people. You're going to answer to the Lord who sees the heart. I wonder, are you a terror among the wheat tonight? You see, we're not capable of judging between wheat and tares. And you may say, well, why doesn't God deal with those people now? Why doesn't God just judge them right now? You know, sometimes people look around the world and they complain because God seems to be indifferent about the sin of the world and the wickedness in the world. And they wanted God to act against the obvious wrongdoer. But wait a minute. What about those that we can't identify as, identify as wrongdoers. Those so-called decent people that we speak about, whose sins are not so obvious. You know, probably, uh, you know, probably the very one who makes that complaint, who says, well, why, was, why, doesn't God, why doesn't God do something about the sin in the world? The person who makes that complaint doesn't realize that very often if God acts against the sin of the world, he's not just going to act at those, against those who are very openly sinful. He's going to act upon all the sinful. Remember a man in, 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 in an open air one time, I was preaching, and afterwards this man came to me and I gave him a gospel tract and he, and he said to me, 
Well, he says, well, what's God going to do about all the, all the wickedness in the world? What's your God doing about the evil in the world? And then he waved his hand in a very pompous way. He said, what's, what's your God going to do about all these people? Pointing at everybody else. And I said, never mind these people. He said, you need to think about what God's going to do with you. He says, me? He says, God doesn't need to do anything with me. He says, I'm okay. He began to tell me how he was a nice guy and, and, and what a good person he was in comparison to these people. But the reality was he was filled with pride and self-righteousness. And he couldn't see it. You see, he, he didn't understand that under that cloak of respectability, there, be, there beats the heart of a sinner. And that's how it is with the terrors, the children of the wicked one. They seem outwardly good, but inwardly they're as rotten as poison. You know, the person who's in greatest danger of hell tonight is not the druggie or the drunkard or the pimp or the prostitute, the foul-mouthed or the fast-living. They know what they are. They know who they are. I remember speaking to a friend of mine. He was telling me about a missionary he had encountered. Uh, I think it was somewhere in France this missionary ministered. And he said he would go down to the docks at night and he would walk along the docks at night and he would speak to the prostitutes and the, and the transgenders and the, and the gay prostitutes and all of those kind of people. And my friend said to him, why do you go to those people and not to the people in the central of the city where you're working? He says, because those people know what they are. He says, they know they're in rebellion against God. You see, it may well be that you don't fit into that camp, but here's my question. Are you a respectable sinner? Is that you? Do you not need to get right with God? You know, maybe you come to this church. Maybe even you're a, a member. Uh, maybe you've been baptized. And maybe you're a person with a great marriage and great kids and, and a lovely set of friends and a lovely, wonderful, comfortable life. But you're still not saved. You're lost. And despite all of the respectability, you're still a child of the wicked one in the heart of hearts. The Lord has his people, and the devil has his people. And it's hard to tell sometimes the Lord's people from the devil's people. But here's the third point in this parable. There's coming a great separation between the Lord's people and the devil's people. You see, God is not acting against the children of the wicked one right now. Why? Because he, he doesn't want to ruin the harvest. It's not harvest time yet. Meanwhile, his, his desire right now is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His desire right now is to have all men to be saved and to come on to the knowledge of the truth. And yet, Jesus does say, ultimately, there will be a great sifting out at the end of the world, at the consummation of this age. And I want you to see how this works. At the end of this age, the Lord Jesus comes. 
He comes to the earth. He puts his feet down upon the Mount of Olives and he begins his, his reign. But before his reign begins, he disperses his angels out into the four corners of the earth to gather in the harvest of the nations, as we call it. The judgment between the sheep and the goats. Now look in Matthew chapter 25 for a moment. Matthew chapter 25. Now in our society... In our world, sheep, sheep and goats are probably easily identified. But if you ever see the sheep in the Middle East, they don't look unlike goats. And sometimes it's hard to tell one from the other. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31, it says this, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and notice, and all the holy angels with him, there's his servants, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, there's his kingdom, and before him shall be gathered all nations, every man and woman alive. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand to the sheep, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hunger and you gave me meat, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink and so on. Uh, let's go down the text of verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, depart from me. This is the goats. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, and these, the goats, shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now understand, you're going to hear Jesus say one of those things. He's either going to say, come, come, ye blessed are my father, inherit the kingdom. Or he's going to say, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire. Every one of us is going to hear one of those sentences from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. It's obvious that those who are the children of the kingdom will inherit the kingdom. And they'll enter into the reign of Christ. But those who are the children of the wicked one, well, they'll depart into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. They will go into everlasting punishment. Those are Jesus' words. You know, if that offends you, it's not me that's offending you. I'm just reading to you what the Bible says. I'm only telling you what Jesus said. I'd be a delinquent preacher if I didn't tell you the truth, if I didn't deal with the subject, if I didn't bring it to your attention. It's way too important to skip over. If there's the potential of your soul going into everlasting fire, listen, that's way too important for me to pass by. And here's the deal. Everybody goes home to be with their respective fathers. If you're a child of the devil tonight, if you're a child of the wicked one, regardless of how nice you may be or however kind you may be or however loving a, a mother, father, son, daughter you may be, no matter how good others may consider you, if you're a child of the devil tonight, if you don't belong to the Lord Jesus, well then let me help you out here. You're going into the burning. You're going into the burning of a Christless eternity. But of course, if you're a child of God, you go into the barn of eternal security. What's it to be, the barn or the burning? 
saved or lost, wheat or tares, sheep or goats. Where do you stand? What group will you gather with in that day? You see, if you won't take Jesus now, here's the reality. You can't have him then. But God, who is long-suffering toward us, is willing that none should perish. He's holding out tonight the offer of salvation. He's waiting until the last, till he knows that the harvest is ripened, that it's completely full and ready to be brought in. And then he lifts his sickle and exercises judgment. That's the reality. Who will be among the children of the wicked one? Well, for sure, those who live their lives in open rebellion, the atheists and the Satanists and all the rest of it, they'll definitely be there. But also those who live their lives in what we might call respectable unbelief. You'll be there. You'll be right there with all the worst that society ever threw up. You'll be standing shoulder to shoulder with Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong and all those tyrants of the past. You'll be there with the Yorkshire Ripper and the Black Panther and all the serial killers. You'll be there with the rapists and the muggers and the, and the, uh, and the pedophiles and others that will be in that place. You see, that's what's going to happen. Those who live lives of respectable unbelief are terrors among the weak. Those who substitute good works for salvation. Uh, those who uh, reject Christ and, and then they excuse themselves by saying, but I'm doing the best I can. Is that you tonight? If I were to come to you tonight and say, are you going to go to heaven? If you were to die right now, where would you spend eternity? Would you say to me, well, I think I'll be going to heaven. And I would say to you, well, why would you think that? And you would say to me, because I'm doing the best I can. Friend, if the best you can got you into heaven, Jesus wouldn't have had to come for you. Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross of Calvary. Jesus wouldn't have shed his blood for you. They're nice people, but they're not necessarily Christian people. And maybe you're one of them. They're tares among the wheat. There are those who, among this crowd who are going to be called, told to depart from him. There are those who go to church and even accept many of the things that Christians believe, but have never trusted Christ. You say, is that even possible? Of course it's possible. James 2.19 says the devil also believes and trembles. Show me a doctrine in this book that the devil doesn't believe. Show me a statement in this book that the devil doesn't know to be true. You say, well, I believe the Bible's true. Well, good for you. But here's the thing. You're going to have to cross the line and say, I believe the Bible's true. I believe what it says about me. I believe what it says about Jesus. I believe Christ died for me. And I will cross the line and put my trust in him. That's what you need to do. Your trust in him. You see, here's the thing. You can mentally assent to the whole of the Bible and still die in your sin and go to hell. No, you must know Jesus. You must actively, purposely, consciously place your heart's trust in him for eternal life. And who else will be there? Well, those people all around you who 
wouldn't hurt you for all the money in the world, but who will ill-advise you on the things of God. The people I'm talking about, maybe you go home tonight and you sit down with one of them. You say, I've just been down to the Baptist church. The pastor down there says, I need to be born again. The pastor down there says, it's not good enough to be religious or to be respectfully unbelieving or, or, or any of those things that I actually need to put my trust in Christ. And here's what they'll say, oh, you, you don't need that. No, no, listen, sweetheart, you, you don't need that. You're a good person. I mean, I know you. If anybody's going to go to heaven, you are. Now, you put all that silly nonsense about being born again out of your head. He tell you who's going to be in that crowd. The person who says that to you. And what's worse is they're dragging you with them. They're bringing you along the road with them. Nice people. Decent people. Well-meaning people in many respects. Loving people perhaps. Kind people. Well-intentioned people. Even religious people. But not saved people. You see this? Is that you? Has the devil pulled a number on you? Is the great separation from the wheat and the tares going to impact upon you? How will you stand in that day? Where will you stand in that day? Which is it going to be for you? You see, it all depends on what you've done with Jesus. Friends, I want to encourage you tonight to examine yourself carefully about where you stand with God. You say, well, pastor, I hear what you're saying, and I fear the devil is trying to make me doubt my salvation this evening. I'm going to say to you tonight, in a message like this, the devil wouldn't make you doubt your salvation. In a message like this, the devil would convince you that you are saved. If God is dealing with your heart tonight, listen, don't you mistake that for the devil. The Lord is calling you home tonight. He's calling you to cross the line for him. He's calling you to stop playing the fool. No more duplicity. No more hiding. No more covering up yourself with this cloak and veneer of respectability. No, all of that's got to fall away. It's going to be an honest admission of sin and guilt. And a sincere cry from the heart to the Lord. Be merciful unto me, a sinner. That's all it's going to take. I wonder tonight, would you say, Pastor, I'm done with sin. I'm done with it. I've had enough of it. I'm coming home. I'm taking Jesus.